0: It's time now for After 9 on 93.1
1: CFIS-FM. Good morning. Uh, It's uh, September all of a sudden. Kids are back in school and uh, the new Monday edition of After 9 is uh, back on the air. I'm your host, Stuart Parker. This is... uh, my uh... my third show as uh... host of the monday edition And um, we're going to be a little less focused on politics this week. Uh, Our uh, main guests are um, uh, Marnie Hamagami from Theatre Northwest and uh, Heather Ramey from the AMDA College of the Performing Arts. We're going to be talking about uh, Theatre in Prince George uh, and specifically about some innovations that Theatre Northwest is making in uh, making theater more accessible. First though, I should say a few words uh, on the political front. We're uh, heading into a Manitoba provincial election uh, this week. Uh, A lot of people haven't noticed it, mainly because the premier was trying to have an election without anyone noticing. But there's been a surprise surge by uh, the NDP's Wab Canoe. Many people thought that the first indigenous leader of a Canadian political party uh, was going to face some serious headwinds and couldn't get a lot of Manitobans on board and instead we see if the NDP doesn't catch the uh, conservatives uh, they will have put in a very serviceable performance. Uh, probably taking a majority of seats in Winnipeg and recapturing uh, their seats uh, in the north. Uh, this is also interesting for us here in uh, in Prince George because um, it's uh, it's another example of an election where. Um, People thought it might be a big realigning campaign, but perhaps it will just be more of the same. The Manitoba Party, a uh, white supremacist nationalist party, failed to take off in this campaign. And I think that's good news for all of us. Of course, we're getting the entertainment of a federal election, uh, which... um, Is taking place in all but uh, the law Justin Trudeau won't call the damn thing he's just running in it so uh, we're uh, we're getting to watch uh, some pretty um, I wouldn't say entertaining I think that uh, sadly my last program really captured a lot of the spirit of the election This is really just a humiliating race to the bottom for each of the political parties participating, and uh, I hope that we'll be able to cover that more in um, later broadcasts of After 9 when we have the candidates back and maybe they can figure out how it is that they can support a plant that only uses fracked gas while stating that they're gonna stop all fracking. The, uh, uh, that this remains a fairly shocking position that the Greens, NDP, Liberals, have taken at least um the tories have the uh, virtue of not opposing fracking and not having a contradictory policy but uh, i'm hoping that we can um drill down get a more serious conversation in the election but certainly the national news isn't helping us all that much on that front we see a humiliating race to the bottom between the greens and ndp in atlantic canada splashed all over the paper with um racist comments by a key defector from the ndp to the greens and then we have um uh our big national story are the death threats, stalking, doxing, etc., of Catherine McKenna, the uh, climate minister, uh, by people on the uh, on the far right. Those fine yellow vesters that Andrew Scheer feels so comfortable addressing. So. Uh, Let's hope that by the time we get back onto hardcore politics, the winds will have changed, the election will be officially on, and we'll be getting a higher quality of news uh, from parts to the east. But today, we're going to be doing some very small P politics. Uh, One of the most important things for the success of a community is its arts scene. Uh, Government has always been involved in the arts because they're understood as one of the pillars of civil society. But at the end of the day, most of the arts funding comes from you, the consumer, through the purchase of tickets, through making donations, that sort of thing. And... um, I hope we can do our part here uh on uh, after nine in uh, moving some tickets uh as well as moving some information about uh the lineup we have in live theater here in prince george this fall so i'd like to introduce marnie hamagami the general manager of theater northwest uh thank you for coming on the program
0: thanks for having me We're excited to be here
1: so um We've got a whole season of live theater. Uh, what's up this uh, this season? What, uh, what can people come out and see?
0: Um, yeah, we do have a really great season coming up. I, I think we have something for everybody. Uh, our first offering is called Dracula, the Bloody Truth, which is a... Um, a comedy. It's slapstick. It's very much in the world of Monty Python sort of humor. Um, I think it's hilarious. I laughed a lot when I when I watched the clips and read the script. Our second performance will be the Ring of Fire, the Johnny Cash story. I don't think I need to talk more about that. It's a pretty straightforward offering. We have some great talent. I'm really excited to be working with Anna Russell as director on that piece. Um, our third show is called It's Sit When Dumb, and that's my best go at the pronunciation of that word, so I apologize for, for that. Um, and this was created by Megwin Fairbrother and co-created by our own Jack Grinhouse, who, of course, was the artistic director until very recently at the theatre. Um, this piece was also up for a Dora Award, which is um, a theatre award in Toronto this year, so we're very proud to be to be showing that. And then finally, uh, Stones in His pocket. Which is also a comedy and um, is about a community in Ireland where everybody, the main industry is the film and television industry and everybody in the community is an extra on the set. Which I think is a hilarious premise because you can, of course, imagine all your friends and neighbors as extras on a TV show.
1: Yes, well, um, uh, that extras theme, I... Uh, When I uh, used to do black community organizing in Vancouver, um, our biggest supporter when we ran the Junior Black Achievement Awards and all the other major stuff was an extras company because um, Vancouver has a tiny, tiny African-Canadian population. And so... A huge portion of the black people in Vancouver were extras uh, for years because of Vancouver's role as Hollywood North, and so I really got to live some of that experience of like all your random friends and people, uh, and you know, people you see at the events and the dinners are also all doubling as extras in the next movie where um, Simon Fraser University is the headquarter of the bad guys, and uh, this is uh, so that's a. Great Great premise. I think there's something for people to uh, relate to. Now, the, the language that um, our third play is in the uh, is it? Uh, let's try that again. Is it uh, This is Ojibwe.
0: I'm actually not a hundred percent sure. Um, I should find that out. Thank you for asking that. Oh yeah, it, you know what? It does say right there. It is. It is in Ojibwe. The of course, the spoken language in the play is English, but that word means. An understanding, um, and so this is this is a piece that's been in development at Theatre Northwest for a few years now. We did early readings of the play. We've workshopped it a few times, um, so it's it's really something that was partially created here at the theater.
1: Well, that's uh, that's extraordinary. That uh, I mean, I I think that one of the exciting things that's happening in um, theater uh, with Indigenous people in Canada today. Uh, are more of these uh, engagements with the pan-Canadian experience of, uh, of Indigenous people, whether in rural or urban settings, that a lot of the Indigenous experience comes from a deep past and from ancient traditions, but a lot of the common experiences of Indigenous people come from the experience of being racialized and uh, screwed over in the present in various ways, or Uh, finding ways to uh, deal with that in a positive fashion in the present. So I think uh, so it's great to see that, um, you know, people from the uh, uh, carrier uh, region contributing to um, uh, to a play, uh, to a play that's uh, talking about uh, indigenous experiences, thousands of kilometers to the east. Uh, So. This is a pretty diverse lineup in terms of genre. We have a a good balance comedy, musical, drama. Um, So obviously, Theatre Northwest has got a mission to try and have something for everyone, or at least a wide variety of people. Uh, So... The thing that I I'm uh, we're expecting to spend a bunch of this show talking about is I think one of the most innovative ways that Theater Northwest is trying to reach. Um, more audiences, more kinds of people. And this is the Relaxed Theatre Program. So could you take us into that, the premise, how it got going, and how that's going to manifest in this season?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, Relaxed Theatre and Relaxed Performances is something that was pioneered in England. Um, and its it was originally, um, the idea behind it was how to help Uh, audiences with autism spectrum disorder engage with the theater world Um, so as they started developing that program it became obvious very quickly that more than just the autism community could benefit from a more relaxed um, viewing environment for theatrical performances particularly proscenium style theater so you know for for a series of reasons um, When you go to see a theatrical, a live theatrical production, the expectation is that you will sit quietly in the dark for, you know, 45 to 90 minutes, depending on the production, you will not leave, you will not talk, you will not make noise, um, except for when the appropriate moment to laugh and clap comes along. Now, that format um, doesn't necessarily work for, for everybody in our community. Um, some people have a difficulty controlling their vocalisms. Some people need to get up and go to the bathroom more often than maybe when they were in their 20s. And some people have young children, uh, particularly infants, who they need to, to bring with them. And so with that in mind, the the idea of relaxed performances began to grow. So a relaxed performance is, is really um, an opportunity for anybody in the community to come who, who might experience uh, theatre or might need to experience theatre in a different way. We keep the house lights on so there's light in the audience. We take a careful viewing of the production and make sure that we um, flag or mitigate any um, sensory triggers that might happen during the production. For example, a few years ago, we did a show that had a gunshot in it, um, and the gunshot is quite loud and quite jarring, um, but for the relaxed performance, we used a canned sound effect that we were able to bring down in level, so it still was a gunshot, it just wasn't at the same decibel level as an actual gunshot. Um, also, if there's any strobing in the lighting, we we soften that. And we also, at the beginning of each produ- of each play, we're careful to mention anything that we think might be a trigger. There's dog barking, there's um, people yelling at each other, there's high emotions. Anything like that is is very much identified in order to help our audience um, interact with the art in a way that works for them.
1: Right. So. Uh... So, an audience comes in, um, and uh, there's a diversity of reasons that people might be there for uh, for the relaxed theater. Um, I, um, you know, for many years, I had no idea that I had any sensory issues at all, but I actually uh, remember going to um, symphonies, operas, whatever, as a child, and just being unable to concentrate on the music, because all I was trying to do... Was not move And to try and uh, And to try and control The incredible sort of pain And itchiness and whatever That I was experiencing From having to sit still And um, so I would think that um, This might not just This isn't just about people Who are in some way Neurologically atypical This might be a different way of bringing one's children into uh in into watching uh theater because certainly i i don't i don't go to um any any of the kinds of theater i was brought up to have a taste for because of just the pain of the original experience
0: yeah no this is exactly exactly the idea i, I mean theater northwest has a a mandate and has had a mandate for many years to make theater accessible to the citizens of northern of the northern interior of our region and that includes making sure that our season holds the kind of productions that appeal to a wide number of people. Like, you know, we want to have a, we want to have drama and a musical and comedy, all of these things, but we also need to make sure that we remove um, things like financial barriers insofar as possible. And also, you know, as you say, some people have young children and buying a theater ticket and paying a babysitter is not possible or, you know, just, overwhelming and just one extra layer of things that they don't want to do or if you have sensory input um, challenges you know we we just are trying to remove as many barriers as possible now our relaxed performances have been going on for three seasons now this is our third season they're my favorite Um, Show of the year We work really hard With our artists To make sure that The artistic integrity Of the play Is maintained And and
1: you do this For each of the productions We do
0: this for each Of the productions Yes it's the first Saturday of every um, Of the run Of every show So I'll I'll make sure That you get the dates I don't know So you can post them But October 26th November 30th February 8th And April 18th These dates are also Available on our website Um yeah, and it's so it's pay what you can. So if uh, if you have a financial barrier to coming, you can come for free. Um, attendants also view the show for free, and we do have hearing aids to help um, to help people who might have auditory challenges view it.
1: No, that's a pretty comprehensive uh, approach to the various accessibility issues, to be able to take all of those on concurrently. Now, obviously, um, this asks directors and actors to rise to the occasion. and uh, are there? Um, and we're going to talk more um, after the break with um, uh, run an interview I did on the weekend with a um, theater professor who is sort of looking at this from a more theoretical perspective. Um, from a practical perspective, um, what's changed in rehearsals and the like since you started this three years ago?
0: Um, you know, surprisingly little. Uh, the the artists so far um, at Theater Northwest have all been not just open to, but eager for these performances. And I guess the main the main difference is it, you. When we first started doing these, I would I would come to a rehearsal and we'd go through the process, and I would always ask, have Has anybody done a relaxed performance before? And Three years ago, everybody said no, but now you know seventy-five percent of them say yes. They've all done this before. It's it's really something that's happening in the theater world in in Canada. Um, the second question is always the director asking about the artistic integrity of the play. Are we going to change anything? And 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 the answer to that is no. You know, we may soften a few sound effects and lighting um, pieces, but by and large, it's the same play that you would see any other evening of the week.
1: Right. So. Um... Uh, so this, this helps to, this helps to set us up, but, uh, you know, there, um, it may be that, uh, as relaxed performance takes hold, uh, that, um, there will be, um, more audacious or substantial accommodations as well, right? That, uh, right now, um, I think there's uh there's a sense of showing that, um, the play can be executed as is in a relaxed context, but perhaps, um, that can just be a jumping off point for, um, uh, for future ways that, um, audiences can be engaged in, uh, in a less traditional manner. So we're going to go to break now. And then, um, we're going to go to, uh, some, uh, content from, uh, Heather Ramey, uh, for the 20 minutes following. And, uh, we'll be back with Barney to talk more, uh, for the last third of the hour. Good morning. I have with me for today's episode, uh, Dr. Uh, Heather Ramey-Conawal. She um, works uh, at uh, as an instructor at uh, Amda College for the Performing Arts in Los Angeles. Uh, I've worked with uh, Heather on shared academic pursuits in the past and I wanted to bring her in for this discussion of the um, Theatre Northwest Relaxed Theatre Project where um, we have different expectations of the audience we uh, accommodate disability we accommodate uh, parents by um, not expecting the audience to necessarily be still and not necessarily expecting the audience to be quiet now my understanding is you know they've um, That when we look back at some of the golden ages of theater, that we look at uh, theater in, in, in classical Athens or theater in London in the age of Shakespeare, there wasn't necessarily an expectation that the audience would be a group of people sitting down quietly, that there wasn't always an expectation the audience would be quiet or still or even sitting down there might even have been expectations the audience would um, uh not always be paying attention or might be uh buying street food or might be um heckling the (laughs) performers when did we develop and how did we develop the expectation that an audience is supposed to be still and supposed to be quiet
2: this is a great question um, i I think it's very interesting to think about uh, what kind in which time periods that has developed. I would say that um, in the in the middle ages, uh, when theater sort of went quiet in the west, uh, there was um theater really resurfaced in the Catholic Church. and there was a time, I think when uh, they uh, the congregation was very responsive to the uh, interactions within the, uh, within the various stories that the priests were telling, and that sort of gave way to new forms of theater, which once they moved outside, then the audience was mobile again. So there was, I think that might have been the beginning of there being a hushedness uh, to the, uh, the interaction with it when it was within the church. But then when it came back out of the church and back into the theater, it became raucous again. Um, and I don't think that it was until maybe, maybe it was sort of the dawn of realism, um, really until we started having much more quiet audiences. I think Shakespeare's time was certainly, um, a loud and, uh, a time where people actually threw things at the actors at times, <laughs> um, and we're certainly standing um, and and very much interacting with the actors uh, on the stage. This, particularly the um, the groundlings who were the, um, the cheapest seats, quote unquote. Of course, they weren't seats; they would come stand in what was called the pit, and uh, and then they would have they would. Interact with the actors, and it was a much more um, uh, visceral experience. I think uh, at the time, but I think it was um, it was a little bit after that because even in Restoration comedy, there was still a very interactive audience. So I would say it had to have come post that. It would be like maybe the even the um, the late eighteen hundreds maybe was when it was just finally started.
1: I think that can certainly fit. We can imagine even the past of North American vaudeville. We don't see that right. it's still and quiet audience. but at the same time, we can go back and we can look at um, uh, we can look at the dawn of uh, we can look at Enlightenment French drama go back Absolutely. 100 years. and what we see is that how quiet the audience is expected to be has something at least to do with whether we think the audience, what class we think the audience is from. Do we think Absolutely. the audience is part of the bourgeoisie? Right. And if we do, then we have different expectations of the audience.
2: I think that's right.
1: <laughs> and uh, so so we've got this, so we've got an interesting project here where, um, um, uh, you know, we talk about expectations of the audience in a very different way here. Normally, when somebody says expectations of the audience, they're thinking, what does the audience expect? And instead, we're, we're kind of switching the, the optic on this and saying, what do we expect the audience to do? How do we expect the audience to conduct itself? And, right. you know, a lot of people, especially, you know, in places where theater tickets are really expensive. Sometimes the (laughs) audience just shows up to watch the other members of the audience. Sometimes nobody's there for the play at all. It's just the audience watching the audience. So let's think about, so people are on a stage. We've got actors, and like the rest of the audience, they're watching the audience too. And you guys have been given a set of expectations over the years as directors and actors that you won't be interrupted, that... um, there isn't going to be a competition between you and other voices in the theater for who can Mm -hmm. be. heard. Uh, So you have a set of things you've been trained to expect from the audience and uh, whether, you know, you're in an actor chair, director chair, and then what changes, what are the challenges of adapting to an audience that behaves differently?
2: Well, I think certainly from a performer's perspective, I think it is certainly an adjustment in your connection to the audience. One of the things that uh, actor training really develops is an ability for the actor to take in the environment uh, that they are performing in, and this is particularly useful because If you're performing in an outdoor amphitheater, for instance, um, and there's a large plane that flies over, you're going to need to take that into consideration and note that your audience can't hear that, right? Um, But if you are – generally, if you're acting and and an audience member um, ends up making a lot of noise, you will oftentimes – you'll either – let it go. If it's not too disturbing, you'll just continue on with what you're doing. But if, it's, if it is disturbing, you'll sort of pause, let it be handled, and, and usually an usher or somebody will come in and uh, escort that person out, right? Um, but I think that there's a, a very, this project I think is very interesting because it's asking the actor to allow for all of that and to find a way to still tell the story and to still bring the joyfulness that is performing through to its audience members, which is gonna have its different challenges. Um, and I would say, so it's asking the actor to shift their, uh, their perspective on, um, on the importance of the quiet. Um, and I think it's uh it's gonna it would I would imagine it would take quite a bit of skill to to respect the the fact that the audience really just needs to have those um, larger parameters, right uh, less restrictive uh, environments uh, from uh, and then they when they're performing, then they can certainly um, take in the experience and bring it feed it into what they're doing ideally i would think all right
1: so um, we're hitting uh, a uh, time for a station break i have uh with me uh dr heather ramey conawal talking about um the uh upcoming theater northwest season of relaxed theater Okay, so uh, we're back. Uh, I have with me uh, uh, Heather Ramey, who is a professor of uh, theater in uh, Los Angeles. Uh, She's uh, an actor, uh, director, and writer, and uh, she's uh, talking with us about some of the challenges performers and directors uh, face and some of the skills that they can bring to bear in delivering this less conventional kind of performance. Now, I remember uh, a version of relaxed theater from my childhood, but it, it didn't involve any actors. It was so, you know, when when movie theaters first came along, it was the movie palace design and you had three movies that just ran in succession in a loop, and people could come in, sit down, join things whenever they wanted, and leave whenever they wanted. Well, they adopted this thing, and they brought that back in the 70s and 80s at uh, some theaters in Vancouver uh, to help deal with the 1970s divorce wave that, you know, I was part (laughs) of. And uh, suddenly you had all these single parents, and especially single dads, really struggling to figure out a thing to do with these younger kids. And so uh, my dad was one of those dads and he'd bring me down to this thing where they just ran a six hour loop of all of the Looney Tunes, Warner Brothers cartoons and children ran up and down the theater aisles screaming. And uh, that was, uh, that was cool. Cause then afterwards we'd get a barbecued chicken. Uh, Love it. So yeah, it was, but in a way, that doesn't seem so controversial, but there are ways that a sort of mastery or control of sound and pacing was made possible using technology in that situation. The right. lights got taken down and, and uh, all these other things. What kind of tools would, um, could a director bring to bear to um, maintain that focus even with the extra movement and noise in the audience
2: that's a good question I think that certainly a director could use um, dim lighting I think to bring a quietness right because we naturally react to dim light in a calm manner um, even I think people who are um, have different sensory issues. Now you could, it really depends on your audience. I would imagine Um, that, and you kind of would have a sense of, of what's uh, what kind of audience you might be having in. so you might adjust lighting. Um, I certainly think that you can adjust sound to, so that it um, doesn't overpower the, uh, the audience members, because a lot of, um, a lot of, people with sensory issues and certainly parents who have infants and toddlers uh it is absolutely the when you have an overwhelming sound the the person who is sensitive to that really would have a a rough reaction um so i think a director could certainly lower sound um the other thing i think that with lighting particularly you really can show someone where to focus one of the things that um the sort of early developers, the very uh, early developers of um, lighting techniques that we still uh, work off of today, which is Adolf Appiah and uh, Edward Gordon Craig, they really began to understand that lighting could draw attention to where you wanted it to go. And uh, I certainly think that a director would um, be able to use that. And I would think in a way that, maybe is a little more repetitive at times, um, to, to bring the focus in. Um, certainly I am also the mother of a toddler. So I highly appreciate when I go to a performance, when they repeat, 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 so that my toddler focuses in and takes, um, and is able to understand that. Um, I think another thing that directors would be able to, uh, really, uh, to lean on would is that is on uh, lean on the actor's ability to uh, to draw attention. So if the actor is good at demanding attention, which is certainly something an actor needs to be uh, trained to do, if they're good at that, they will they know just by sensing it where when they have the audience's attention. And uh, I and an an actor that would come in to a project like this um, would would have to ha- have sort of extra spidey senses, right? <laughs> to to feel the where the attention is. So I think that partially the the director might want to allow for a little bit of extra time for the audience to focus in on what where the actor wants to bring the attention. Um, I think. Go
1: ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say, one of the things that's really interesting that's coming out here is um, that this isn't about so much about competing um, for control of sound or for the most mm-hmm. sound. This is actually, in many ways, you're talking about a theory of gentleness. That Absolutely. that manifests in a slowness, but yeah, it also yeah. manifests in recognizing that people's sensory issues are issues they're having. We often think that people with sensory issues, it's like, well, that's an issue for me because they're inconveniencing me with their sensory (laughs) issues. But the reality is if somebody's got sensory issues, they may well require not not always a firmer touch, but also a more delicate touch, a more subtle touch. And I think that this comes out of not just a politics of gentleness, but the style you're describing strikes me as a very gentle one.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's something very valuable in, um, in understanding approach, right? The, the concept of approach and how one approaches an audience. Uh, one, of, one of my favorite uh, theorists uh, in theater is Antoine Artaud. And Artaud wanted to shock the system. And um, and I think that there, there's a very interesting um, avenue to be explored in the opposite effect, in the what I would maybe sort of phrase as the you know get bees with honey uh, experience. And there's something in uh, one of the things I think might be a, a very interesting way for a director to um, approach some of this is very similar to what is uh, some current art. Uh, that is being created. Um, In fact, I just went to a piece this morning, (laughs) Um, which is an interactive art experience. So the idea that the audience doesn't necessarily have to sit and be, that they can actually, um, maybe they're offered into the room and they can... Uh, and, but in the room, there is an experience that's happening, and in that experience, there's a story that's going to be told by actors and around, right? Possibly, um, where we can take cues from um, theater practitioners who have done theater in um, alternative spaces, um, in site-specific spaces, they would call it. So you maybe you do you take in um, uh, you take a museum for the day and in that museum, you're gonna tell the story, but the museum allows you a different um, expectation of the audience, yeah? And so what um, this this theater might have, a a director might say, okay, I'm gonna bring them into this theater and instead of the expectation that they're gonna sit and be quiet, I'm gonna expect that they can just walk around wherever they want. And because I can expect that they're gonna walk around wherever they want, I can put a scene in this back corner, right? Or I can put a scene under, um, you know, in the pit. And they can come up and look down into the pit, if there's an orchestra pit, for instance, something like that. No, I think this
1: is is tremendous. And I I wish that we had the time to to go through this. I hope that we can, uh, we'll bring you and Marnie back at the end of the season to uh, talk about... um, Uh, how relaxed theater went this season and uh, what might be on its horizon, including, I think, some of these very interesting spatial ideas. So thank you very much, Heather. Okay, thank you. You're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS FM. Well, welcome back to the last third of uh, the Monday edition of After 9. I'm Stuart Parker. I'm in studio with Marnie Hamagami from Theatre Northwest, and we are continuing to talk about the relaxed theatre movement. It's interesting to note that um, uh, relaxed theatre comes out of the UK, where... um, we see really different ideas about uh, ability, disability and accommodation, right? The UK is the home of the mad pride movement, for instance, which takes on a very different set of ideas about mental health. And so one of the questions is, if this is a global movement, starts in the UK, catches on in Canada and is gaining momentum steadily here, from a performance perspective, what might be in the future of relaxed theater? How might we go further in um, taking advantage of this new way of mediating the relationship between audience and performer?
0: That's a really great, great question. And I think it is important to underline that um, theater Northwest is still learning about how to do this more perfectly. And so how it's, I find it challenging to theorize about how that relationship might evolve as a non-artist. I think that, well obviously at least part of that evolution will come from the artist experience and how they interact with the audience and and how that piece works for them. Um, I know that the one thing that I can say with certainty is that theater Northwest will continue to be committed to providing the space for the evolution of that relationship in our community and, and, and to be open to the changes as they come through.
1: Yeah. One of the things that uh, Dr. Ramey suggested in uh, the earlier segment was um, that, uh, You know, you used a fancy term early in the interview, the term proscenium, referring to um, this very formal idea of a stage that's created by an arch and by curtains. The arch from ancient classical theater, the curtains from the enlightenment, and how this makes the stage a special space. And so heard about how, well, if you're equalizing light levels and sound production and all these other things, the stage may get a little bit more porous; that the boundary between audience and stage is already starting to break down.
0: Exactly, that that fourth wall is definitely coming down in the relaxed setting. Um, you you can already see that there's a more real interaction between artist and audience um, during the relaxed performances, and the question of whether you know the artists will start playing off the audience to a certain extent is going is is very real and how that how that will look is is going to be interesting to watch the evolution of it because the other piece of this um of this experience is that in a lot of ways our relaxed audiences are our most honest critics you really know if you don't have their attention <laughs> there is no pretense to to paying attention if if they're not interested, if your performance is lacking in some way, if the storyline doesn't work, whatever series of reasons.
1: Yeah. And I, I uh, thinking back to, uh, you know, my, uh, you know, divorce wave relaxed matinee experience from my childhood. Um, I remember finding it very affirming that the whole screaming in the aisles running around, uh, going to the concession stand, um, always peaked during the Warner Brothers cartoons that I personally disliked the most mm-hmm. as a kid. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, I think it's, um, I think, it, yeah, you do get that, that. There is an immediacy in a whole bunch of um, of quite different ways. So, obviously, um, there are a lot of different things that are mixed into relaxed theory. We've talked a bit about kids and parents and accommodating parenting duties and uh questions of closeness. And so the needs of parents and children are being met. Both the kids having an opportunity to see a thing that they simply don't have the resources to see in another context, having that experience earlier in life than they would otherwise get it. The parent having a bunch of child care problems solved. Then we have another constituency of people in the audience, people that um we uh, that uh, that deal with questions of disability, and uh, so those are kind of separate questions. We have a we have a resource that's helping um, that's helping all these constituencies, but uh, I was really struck by uh, both uh, you and Heather talking about how um, how to be gentler with the audience so when we think about that gentleness you talked about sound you talked about light how much are we navigating the experience by sort of getting into the heads of people who are dealing with sensory or attention issues
0: well and i think that at least in the case of theater northwest that is one of the things that we we wanted to be particularly aware of and and did ask that question directly to um, a couple of organizations and particular people in the community is to say how how can we? facilitate this experience for you what can we do so so there's a component of us guessing for sure and there's also a component of people telling us and it's an evolving process you know so
1: this consultation uh, this this sounds really quite exciting so what were the organizations that you went to uh,
0: so we worked really closely with aim high um, they were both financially and spiritually very supportive of this endeavor and they they come Quite frequently to all of our performances. Uh, the other group was the Autism Society, and I'm and I'm not a hundred percent sure what the formal name of that organization is. Maybe the BC Autism Society. And Corey Walker in the community, he was really helpful, particularly in crafting our social story, which uh, appears on our website. So um, social stories are a fairly common tool that we use for particularly children, but I'm sure all a lot of people use them to sort of mitigate um, to mitigate the idea of expectations. You know, like if you can see a picture of the space before you come to it for the first time, if you can see a picture of the people you're going to see, a picture of the bathroom. Oh. So you have a, a live real map to show you where to go and how to get there. Um, it, it It's not obviously it's not the same as experiencing the space first person, but. It gives it you an idea.
1: Anxiety. It anxiety. Exactly. It cuts down on interference. Okay, we're going to go to our last break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this discussion and ask one of the bigger questions about disability and public space. After 9 on 93.1 CFIS FM. Alright, so uh, we're back in the uh, last segment of uh, After 9. I'm Stuart Parker. I'm with Marnie Hamagami from Theatre Northwest and we're wrapping up our discussion of the Relaxed Theatre Program. Now, so often when we talk about accommodating disability, we think we believe we're thinking about how disabled people are inconvenienced and how we can make their lives more convenient. But When I think about um, when we prescribe psychiatric medication, when I think about uh, what kind of spaces we create, so often what we really mean is that people's disabilities are inconveniencing us and we want to get them under control. That when we medicaid or restrain people often our goal is to make sure that they don't interrupt what we want to hear or what we want to see or what we want to do so when we're thinking about um, about relaxed theater how do you balance the needs of people who have perhaps additional and significant sensory issues and their need to concentrate with the needs of other people to move about, to make sounds, all of those things, where, um, how much of the accommodation is about a comedy uh, is about suppressing what disabled people need or want, and how much of it is about uh, is about providing.
0: Yeah, you've definitely put your finger right on the on the biggest problem with the program, and that, and and so far. Our answer to that has been it's not an issue yet, so we haven't addressed it. But yes, you're right. We do have competing interests existing within the audience, which is in fact the genesis of the whole relaxed program. So, for example, if you have an audience that is mostly people who need to move around and make noise and vocalizations, it becomes really challenging to then incorporate people with um, with hearing difficulties or loss or deafness. Um, so, so making 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 the program all things to all people is inherently impossible and will necessitate change over time for sure um but the the interesting question of of mitigating disability trying to make disability fit the the quote unquote norm is absolutely one of the big challenges and and you're totally right this is you know people who who have trouble diff- trouble controlling their own vocalized or their vocalizations they're not upset by it they're upset by the social contract that we're all expected to be quiet so so how do you how do you make a space where where that is where that is less of a challenge for them and and yeah that's absolutely the the genesis behind this and and sort of acknowledging that yeah there's a set of expectations no, we can't do anything about it in the broader context of society. But yeah, here we are doing what we
1: can. And I think one of the things is that we have to look at our social expectations, this idea of bodily self-control and perfect hearing and perfect perception. These are ideas that come from one time and place. And there are all kinds of people who are not disabled and don't have kids for whom those ideas are not necessarily the best ideas anyway. Mm-hmm. In the age of Shakespeare, people went to the greatest plays in the English language, uh, yelling at the performers, having street food sold to them loudly, uh, standing up, falling into mud, all of those things. and so. One of the things I really realized when I was being taken to these very high-end performances as a kid and wanting to just die or pass out, um, really tried to go to sleep, but I was too uncomfortable, was that a lot of the reason I was there, a lot of the reason my mother and grandmother were there, was because what the audience was really looking at was itself. It was a group of upper-middle-class people who were all turning up to look at each other And reassure each other about their social class. And I think that even in the quietest, most precise performance, a lot of the time the audience isn't actually there to hear everything or see everything. The audience is there to be together in an audience. And that it may be that our main need when we go to the theater or we go to the movies is that the need to sit next to a bunch of other people with the lights down that that's actually the main thing we're paying for I love those big theaters they have down at the coast where they serve booze and they have the really comfy seats because I realize that I'm actually going to I'm going to the movies to go to the movies like my first question is is this theater licensed not what's the movie I'm being invited to and uh you know, I might be an outlying case, but I think that this is one of the ways that relaxed theater is already succeeding because it's because it's not just that it's showing a performance. It's providing a pretext for a really diverse group of people to be social, to be public, to be out, and to be accepted.
0: And, and to take it out of the theater context... Prince George is such a word of mouth community and people like to stand around the water cooler, so to speak and chat about what they did in the weekend and how, you know, what they saw. And if you're excluding an entire segment of the community from that conversation, based on the fact that they don't meet the very strict, very unrealistic criteria of sitting quietly for 90 minutes, then how can they possibly expect to participate in the greater societal conversations that are happening? And I'm not talking about anything weighty or esoteric here, but something as simple as, did you see Elvis? Wasn't he cute? (laughs) You know, just basic things.
1: Yeah, I think that's really important because one of the, um, as I'm getting to know Prince George, I think there's a very engaged core of this community that's extraordinarily accepting. But I also am struck by the number of people in this community that I would categorize, I developed this term doing internet dating, as being in social dark matter. There are so many people whose lives aren't connecting outwards into a larger community. And uh, I think the desire to make those lives connect and to create more of those bridges is a politics that I think all of us can subscribe to. So I wanna thank you very much for coming on the show. Why don't you come back at the end of the season and let us know how it went?
0: Absolutely, thanks for having me.